healthcare services are actually beyond the clinic. We have to put healthcare into our homes, into our community sites. We have to take it outside of the traditional infrastructure. We have a systemic problem that there aren't enough primary care providers for our population to be doing all of the preventative measures that we want to do. It's just not possible. So if we really want to take advantage of scientific advances and vaccine and diagnostics and what these tools and advanced cancer screenings and things like this can provide us, we have to think differently about distribution of those tools. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. During the pandemic, we've done a lot of things at home, from work to haircuts. What if healthcare happened at home too? Our guest today, Andrew Kobylinski, found himself wondering about this in 2020. Now in 2022, Andrew is the CEO and co-founder of Primary Health. Andrew and his team at Primary Health are working to make healthcare more accessible by making things like COVID-19 testing and vaccination easy. Andrew is also an experienced entrepreneur with 15 years in the health tech industry, which means he has a lot of stories and a lot of advice. Here's our conversation. Well, Andrew, thanks for joining me this morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I've been following your stories quite a bit, and um, I thought it would be good for us to start a bit about your background, your journey. What are the things that you know brought you to where you are today? I mean, not you are here as a podcast, but the company that you started, Primary.Health. Yeah, thank you. Um, my background is not traditional. I'm, a, in a sense, an accidental CEO of this company. Um, my background, just and given what's happening politically in the world right now, I'm a child of immigrants, parents who defected from Poland in 1980. And I like to think of my experience through education in the U.S. as being very much trial and error, <laughs> learning about the SATs after my peers were doing PSATs and all kind of life was very, it was interesting to kind of keep up and learn and um, stay on top of things. But I went to UC Santa Barbara, studied computer science, did not actually finish with a degree but left with too many units um, and was always looking at entrepreneurial efforts in healthcare from a younger age in college and afterwards. Um, and that led to a career pretty much 15 years in digital health. And when I was wrapping up my experience at a previous company, helping the CEO exit a startup called Better Doctor, which was working on the provider directory data problem, you know, how health plans build their networks and how do you find a doctor? Um, I had some free time, so I started volunteering for some COVID efforts at, right at the beginning of the pandemic, and I found myself leading one effort that formed, became Primary.Health, and a company that is now looking at the future of infectious disease. So it's a very accidental path, um, not one I expected or deliberately planned, but I kind of put myself out there to try to help and make a difference, and here I am. It's interesting your comment about your parents are immigrant, and I think 
me being an immigrant, sometimes I do not really know what the path is always. I have a 15 years old son now. All the little education system here, I don't know much about. And I thought it was interesting that you figured out about SAT once you when after you your friend did all the PSAT. And I was like, oh, I need to do SAT. So I thought that was interesting. Um, tell me more about your uh, volunteer that led you to start this company. What volunteer work is that? Yeah, absolutely. So it was interesting. Um, I think if we remember early in the pandemic, there are quite a few hackathons mm-hmm. that people are having. And you had lots of individuals volunteering from all across industry, healthcare, et cetera. How do we help? Well, I know how to do digital tools. Maybe we can do a self-reported test message thing. So there's a lot of efforts and activities and groups kind of talking about different efforts. In the town of Bolinas, California, so just an hour north of San Francisco across the Golden Gate Bridge, you have this rural community that is a mix of wealthy billionaires as well as homeless hippies. <laughs> um, you have everything in between, a very diverse kind of rural community on the coast. Several UCSF administrators kind of live there, as well as community leaders. And um, the community there felt inspired by this reading about the city in Italy called Bo that had managed to test their entire population for COVID. And this is early in the pandemic when there was no large community testing at all. In fact, testing was still at a state where you had to basically get a physician order and then find a lab that had a test and no labs, there really weren't any. So at the time, the UCSF administrators connected with Dr. Joe DeRisi's lab, the CZ Biohub, and that became the lab to kind of process specimens. And then various um, UCSF MDs were to run the research study. So it was both kind of um, a PCR and antibody test. And we were trying to get the whole community. So the goal was try to get 100% of the community of Bolinas. And when, what was really interesting about this project is you had a backer, you had a research component and a lab willing to, in a research sense, perform testing that no one else could legally perform commercially um, in an aspirational goal of testing an entire population. We, as the team started getting going, they needed volunteers. So there were actually several Airbnb engineers who were coding kind of behind the scenes. There were other groups, there were kind of marketing teams. And um, I was recruited in through kind of a network of people just through digital health work of, A, can you help them organize this? So I became initially a project manager for the digital side of this, trying to solve, okay, if we're going to take two types of specimens in an environment where we have to have one way kind of sharing of materials with the participant. Because remember, early in the pandemic, we were fearful of how this virus transmitted. We couldn't do a clipboard with paper forms going two directions, handing it to one person, taking it back, because that was contained. All staff had bunny suits and full PPE and face masks. Like This was when, you know, ensuring that the only sharing of materials was a specimen at the point of collection and everything else was remote. And doing this for an entire population. So your homebound seniors to someone driving up the side on a moped <laughs> to someone walking up um, to a household, you know, a car, you know, head of household and family members and friends who are in their own little bubbles getting tested all together at the same time. We 
quickly found after trying to deploy existing EHRs, um, you know, through digital health, I had had experience with electronic health record systems of many flavors, um, other systems, just trying to bring kind of existing IT into this problem. And we couldn't find anything that would work. So, for example, systems that required our username and password locker, login, two-factor authentication, mm-hmm. that doesn't work in a dirt parking lot with a $50 Amazon tablet and a population that only has a landline telephone and don't, doesn't even have an email address. Like, all our digital systems just weren't there. So, the what we learned quickly is we had to kind of... <laughs> code it together, code it all by scratch and leverage what pieces were there. And that led our development team and myself to many late nights, all-nighters coding furiously um, and writing on the fly. Like the same day of testing, we were writing new code and mm-hmm. for resulting and all kinds of stuff and lab integrations and all of these details. Um, that project was successful. We, we think we tested about... 90% of the population of Bolinas, maybe higher, 95%. The exact census data of how many people live there is a little bit, the denominator is not super well known, so it's a little hard to pinpoint exactly. Um, but what was interesting is the researchers at UCSF um, liked a lot of the work that we had done digitally and said, we had this more, even larger, more aspirational study the following week in the San Francisco Mission District can you bring some of the digital tools into that project? And so we continued the work. And as a volunteer, kind of helping then on a second study, um, it became clear that large communities and academic institutions that wanted to do community-based projects, they needed a partner who could stitch this kind of crazy world of healthcare IT that we currently live in, stitch it together in a new way that can actually be deployed for these pandemic response efforts. Can you tell us more like in the description, like what is uh, primary.health? I mean, like from your volunteer work, the project that you do, and at what point is that, oh, this is in, in order to serve a bigger community, we need to start a company rather than being part of a volunteer project. So from a technical perspective, in the earliest days, it was an IT system for registering participants, so patient intake, and communicating results back to them digitally. So, so when you look at a healthcare system, that means intake, a lab order to a laboratory, a laboratory result back to a system, then communication back to the patient. You have to remember early in the pandemic that the usual workflow for all labs was a f- first a physician seeing a patient, the physician inputting an order to a limb system, the lab processing the result, the lab communicating result back to the physician, and then the responsibility on the physician to do the last mile communication to the patient. And even more kind of crazy to think about, the standard way of communicating the lab result back to the physician that was a fax message. Like, at the start of the pandemic, that was the norm, <laughs> a physician getting a fax. And that is 2020. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so in our projects, when you're looking at community scale, none of that scales. You can't do manual data entry. You can't do thousands of faxes. 
you need data systems that work instantly at high volume. So we initially became a very narrow kind of workflow for just that part of getting lab orders to a lab and then results back to participants. Um, but also because this was a research study, we did interesting integrations with REDCap and other data repositories. And our platform became basically a very consumer-friendly, patient-friendly, public-friendly, direct-to-consumer interface into the clinical ecosystem, into limb systems, EHRs, research systems, where we could put out into the public something very similar, very Google-like or Twitter-like, you know, just use easy-to-use interfaces with modern user design and bring that data into these old-fashioned clinical systems, no matter how messy they were. Okay. Today, the system um, is basic, it kind of looks like a lightweight EHR and patient portal as an IT platform. And how is that impacting, I mean, you said lightweight EHR. I feel like there's so many EHR out there and that's why it makes it so convoluted. It's like so messy because there's so many different systems. And now there's another one in how do you integrate with all out there and make it useful for the patients and the providers? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the answer to that is there's a lot of EHRs. There's a lot of software written for the clinical setting. And there's a lot of really good software and iterative work on software for the clinical setting. As a society and a sector, we haven't built workflows for the general public to interact with the healthcare system outside of the clinic. So it's actually a new area that is emerging very rapidly to say, what are the IT systems that can bridge the gap and extend healthcare outside of the clinical office. So a good example of this is the use of primary at the 24th and CAP site in the San Francisco Mission District has facilitated over 50,000 vaccine doses for the city and county of San Francisco. That site is also doing a lot of testing, has run validation studies in January on the effectiveness of rapid antigen, the Abbott Binax Now cards against Omicron variant to reassure the public on that these things work, as well as demystifying which swabbing sample is the best for these rapid cards, nose, throat, saliva, cheek, et cetera. And our system, you know, there's, I haven't seen health IT have a spec of, you know, software that can go out into community setting can be used by a volunteer that is recruited that morning, learns how to, you know, on input patient data in 10 minutes can facilitate the complexity of lab orders for an HIV diagnostic, cholesterol, diabetes screening, et cetera, rapid tests, and be so simple that these new volunteers can operationalize these things. Maybe a new nurse is brought in that morning to fill a gap in the shift, um, execute, and actually run at a volume that is maybe 500 participants an hour. Like that, that is a unique challenge that until the pandemic happened, which forced us to take healthcare outside of the traditional clinic, no one was really working on. So it's, 
I think we're at the very beginnings of a new category of healthcare IT software, one that facilitates healthcare in the home and in community settings. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. Before I dive in into that, I, I want you to touch base a little bit about, you mentioned about the capsite. Can you tell us more about what that is for some of us who are not familiar? Yes, yeah, so the 24th and CAP site, um, it's moved around a little bit over time and had satellites at the BART station there, 24th emission as well. Um, it is a site that UCSF runs. So um, it's in partnership with Unidas and Salute. So it's kind of, it's on, I should back up a little bit and give the origins a little bit. Early in the pandemic, a bunch of UCSF MDs we're going, we're asking the question, why is the ICU full of Latinx? What is going on? We have a very diverse San Francisco, yet the the distribution of COVID patients early in the pandemic are very heavily Latinx. What is going on? So community leaders were also frustrated with this fact. They were seeing it too. And there was an early call in the mission to say, hey, we're getting impacted more than others. We don't understand why. Someone help us. Let's bring in some infrastructure. So UCSF and Unidas and SLUD um, and the Latino task force in the missions that popped up testing in the mission. And these testing sites became the first easy walk up, no questions asked, no ID, no insurance required access points to testing in the community settings. And in addition, because so many of the UCSF researchers have had an amazing history working in HIV, AIDS, et cetera, it was a unique understanding of the household and how disease can spread in different patterns than you might expect. So the research questions were broad and the willingness to do quick study um, was very mature. So when researchers said, okay, Here's a positive case, but let's walk home with that patient and actually test the whole household to see what's going on. They would walk home and find half the household had COVID. And then they would ask the question, why is this happening? How is the spread happening? And why is this community getting further impacted? And they would discover that, well, in a time of lockdown in this community, when everyone who has the means to work from home has a COVID case rate of effectively zero. And everyone who lives in these down, dense households and has members that have to go to work every day to earn a paycheck, their active caseload is 10, 12%. And it was UCSF and the research through community sites like the mission site that uncovered these patterns that were causing the end result of the higher ICU utilization by these populations. And you know, we look back on it now, it's very odd, uh, duh. But early in the pandemic, it, none of this was clear. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, so the, that site has served and continues to serve as a community access point to have no barrier testing and diagnostics. Um, it now also enrolls the population into Medi-Cal and other programs where we're eligible. It becomes an entry point into the healthcare system for that community. And it's also a point that whenever something happens, it's led by the community. So it's a safe space. So people mm-hmm. can go there with whatever health concern or issue or COVID concern and quickly get care. Okay. So I noticed also, you know, you started from there, but I think it also you expanded to serving the school district as well. Can you tell us uh, also the role of school district and the community health? Yes, schools are extremely important. Um, I think as a parent of a three-year-old toddler, I think every parent can sympathize with the amount of illness we live with in our lives of having school-aged children, you know, the number of flus and colds, et cetera. So early in the pandemic, there was very little data about the transmission in school-aged populations. Um, there was a lot of pressure to close schools early and then a lot of pressure to open schools, but there was a lack of data. And overall, our population was, you know, we formed bubbles to protect our kids. So the case rates and incidents and ICU utilization of children were artificially low from the fact that we were protecting our children quite well. So the death of data on severity in children was quite lacking. Um, a bunch of the UCSF researchers in the fall, um, you know, in the first year of the pandemic, we're starting to ask the question, well, we shut down schools. We really need to open them up, but how are we going to do that safely? What tools do we have to do that safely? And at the same time, the federal government had rolled out the first hundred million or so rapid antigen Binance Now cards, and they're sitting in warehouses as we were entering the first winter kind of period of the pandemic, unused. And the researchers and you know, really smart scientists at UCSF were saying, hey, these tests look like they should be really good in these populations. Why aren't we deploying them? And in partnership with California Department of Public Health, um, UCSF, Primary, and CDPH used sites like the Mission District site, 24th and CAP, and other sites to run some of the first large-scale studies of these rapid diagnostics to resolve the discordant result issues that were holding back their broad use in populations. So that was also a study to say, let's use these in young children and see what we find. And let's go ahead and swab multiple times each participant, run multiple PCRs, run multiple antigen. Let's take a look at every discordant result, the CT cutoff numbers, and study and look at exactly what's happening and solve the scientific debate around sensitivity and infectiousness so that we can unlock the use of new tools that might open our schools. And the UCSF team learned a lot, and the data showed that these tests were quite good in the peak infectious period. And that resulted with quick, from a Thanksgiving weekend (laughs) study period, to firm recommendations. And then on the day after Christmas, um, Primary was on phone calls with Several school districts, one in Coronado and one in Central Valley, so in San Diego and Central Valley, um, Medina or Madeira, sorry, <laughs> I'm blanking on the name, I'll have to go back to it, 
um, about doing a rapid antigen school pilot. And we very quickly set up the digital systems trained school staff to run rapid antigen cards. And we're literally that week between Christmas and the new year before back to school, when teachers and administrators were doing kind of back to school prep and e-learning prep, they were able to test each other. And in their experience of testing each other, finding asymptomatic carriers, getting those asymptomatic out of those back to school sessions, and then seeing their faculty and staff not getting infected for the next week gave them the confidence to actually resolve and say, hey, with testing, we can open schools safely. This is a real tool. The teachers' unions, the everyone were finally saying, well, there's something we can actually plan around and create a program and go. So from those two initial projects, we very quickly expanded to more schools, demonstrate more broadly to the state um, that rapid antigen was a was a tool that could safely allow us to reopen schools. And it kind of steamrolled a whole process of kind of accelerating school reopenings in the spring because of the, you know, the characteristics and performance of rapid antigen. Well, that's great. I feel like uh, with the COVID, like you've been running 150 miles per hour every day. Along the way, I'm sure you have a lot of lessons learned throughout this year and a half, two years. What are those that you can share? Yeah, um, probably the most important lesson is that healthcare services are actually beyond the clinic. We have to put healthcare into our homes, into our community sites. We have to take it outside of the traditional infrastructure. We have systemic problem that there aren't enough primary care providers for our population to be doing all of the preventative measures that we want to do. It's just not possible. So if we really want to take advantage of scientific advances and vaccine and diagnostics and what these tools and advanced cancer screenings and things like this can provide us, we have to think differently about distribution of those tools. If you require that someone goes I think I need this. They have to go through the trouble of finding a physician to get a, an appointment or access a clinic, take time off work to go do that, then finally get an order for one of these diagnostics, and then find a way to go get that administered, and then wait around to someone contacts them with the results, and then with that result, figure out what they do next. That life cycle doesn't scale, and it is what our system is set up as right now. So if you're thinking of the future of public health, the key lesson is we have to enable people like you and I to do very basic healthcare services ourselves in the comfort of our home, in the comfort of a local church, in the comfort of our school, in ways, in simple methodologies and workflows that take minutes out of our daily lives. So it becomes just a normal thing that we do. And the sooner we recognize that and enable those new technologies from a regulatory reimbursement and clinical workflow perspective, so that really smart MDs are very much integrated to this, but they're enabling and accelerating this broader activity on larger and larger populations, 
the faster we can actually make meaningful dents and some really unsettling trends. So for example, right now, STDs continues to increase. Um, there's no meaningful reduction in that right now, the current setup. And to change that trend, you have to bring almost pandemic-like response. <laughs> you have to think about it differently. So hopefully with COVID is, hopefully it's going away s- slowly, um, but hopefully it's gone in the next few months. <laughs> uh, what's next for you and primary.health? You mentioned about the STD rising. I, I feel yeah. like there's a lot that you can participate. Yeah, it's a great question. I feel like we've, we've had this question twice in our history before. Um, first, it was vaccines were coming out, so everyone will get vaccinated and we'll all have high levels of immunity and it'll be over. And then the reality dawned upon us that the percentage of vaccinated is not nearly high enough and it never will be. So there's going to be vulnerable now from COVID for the long term. So that doesn't go away. The second point is before Delta, the other variants had a pattern of going to zero, meaning the reproductive rate of those variants with mitigation measures, you could effectively take the case rates to zero quite quickly and quite definitively. What we're seeing now with the new variants is they've just peaked across that we're never, we're not getting to zero anymore. We're, we're in this state of persistent viral load in a population that is not going away. And that viral load means that in a very sinister way, it just creeps through the vulnerable over time. It gets to us. As our neutralizing immunity wanes, it causes more waves of infection. Maybe not ICU or death in the general population, but definitely amongst the vulnerable. Um, I myself have lost a father-in-law to COVID in the pandemic. He was immunocompromised leukemia patient. Um, This past week, I lost um, a close friend who was suffering with prostate cancer and the quality of his life has deteriorated significantly because of, you know, not being able to be social and not be able to do the things you want to do. And so as we look forward, um, reaching a more low prevalence of COVID gives us the money, opportunity, resources to focus on those who are vulnerable for the next two years and figure out new novel ways to protect them. Um, in some sense, that's the problem I'm, I'm very much excited about. So it's a very much COVID plus future. And in settings like schools, where in January we had school districts, because of the rapid testing, they were able to keep infectious kids out and keep the schools running and bring a kind of return to normalcy in education. That preparedness of testing capabilities in the school setting is paramount and clearly validated finally. And those schools are asking, hey, this is an infectious disease prevention. And we've long been hit hard by flu, strep, RSV, these other infectious diseases in our populations. We're spending this money on COVID and we need to continue some surveillance. Can you please make a dent in these other diseases? So most fundamentally for the company, outside of these very tactical things that we're going to live with with COVID in the next year, the opportunity scientifically, what I've learned from UCSF and the researchers, as we we're in a unique place to redefine what is normal levels of illness 
in our society, in our daily lives. And as a parent, if I could have 50% less colds and flus in the household, <laughs> oh, I would love it. Um, yeah. I think we can all resonate with that. And the pandemic has given us tools to actually make a new definition of what's normal here. And that's what really excites me about the future. Well, that's great. Well, thank you. I'm so sorry to hear your loss, but it's like you're doing an amazing thing and making an impact. And I can't wait to see what's the future hope for you and the primary.health. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.